Back in 2001, uh, my freshman year at Mississippi State, we were preparing to play South Carolina in football. Now, they had a coach named Lou Holtz, who was a legend. Uh, he, he had won a national championship at Notre Dame in the 80s. He was their coach. But at that time, South Carolina wasn't very good. In fact, the day before the game, uh, ESPN had Lou Holtz on for an interview, and he really downplayed, almost bad-mouthed, his own team. He was saying things like, you know, we can't protect the quarterback. Uh, we don't have very much speed on defense. And I remember watching that, that interview and thinking to myself, man, we're going to beat the tar out of these guys. Well, of course, the next day they come into Starkville and beat us, 16 to 14. And only later did it occur to me the strategy <laughs> that Lou Holtz uh, was employing there. This is something he made an entire career out of, uh, to, to uh, lower expectations, uh, but then to overcome on the field where it really counts. Uh, there's a phrase that says, uh, under promise, over deliver. And that's kind of what uh, I experienced that Saturday on the field. Uh, the impression he gave of what they were didn't match reality. We all, as we look today at, at John chapter 1, um, John is bringing us out of his introduction, an 18-verse introduction. We just finished it last week. Now we really enter into the narrative, the actual accounts of Jesus and his ministry. But John doesn't rush to Jesus right away. He actually begins with uh, the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist is one of the most interesting, amazing people in history. Not just inside the Bible, but in all of history, John the Baptist is widely known and admired, and he's just, honestly, he's, he's peculiar, and, and we see why. God calls this man, John, to be a prophet to Israel. And it, and it came, John's ministry came after a very long period of silence. God had not sent a prophet to his people in over 400 years, not since Malachi. But God sends this man and he sends him out into the wilderness, not into the city center where he'd get the most attention immediately, but out into the wilderness. And John's clothes, we're told, are made of camel's hair, and his diet was locusts and honey. Uh, I, I guess the honey helps disguise the fact that you're eating a big scary bug. Um, but John, John is an, he's just an interesting person, the way it reads. Uh, to us, and he was—he would have been considered strange even in his own day, but his ministry exploded. I mean, people had not seen anything like it in their generation. Great crowds were coming out to hear him preach. Many people were being baptized by him, and his message to the people was, was pretty basic and simple. He was saying to them, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here. It's coming. And many people were repenting. They were turning away from their sin and turning to God. But it's at, the, at the, that point that we kind of see something unexpected. As John's ministry seems to be at its peak, his popularity is soaring. John all of a sudden begins to push the attention and the expectation onto someone else. As everybody's looking at John, 
John very deliberately steps into the shadows so that he might shine the spotlight on Jesus instead. And so, kind of like Lou Holtz, maybe. If you hear John talk about himself, it's very unimpressive. We might not think of him as much at all. Of course, we know better. But then when we hear John talk about Jesus, everything changes. When John speaks of Jesus, we realize who he had come to prepare us for. And this is the the context of John chapter 1. As we begin the narrative, the story, in verse 19, look at what happens here. Uh, John, the author, tells us this is the testimony of John the Baptist. When the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And so they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now, John, we, we see this. John's ministry had become so influential that the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the big dogs, sent a group of folks to size him up. We've got to know who this man thinks he is. And they're asking the big questions here. The first one is, are you claiming to be the Messiah? Or at least that's what's implied in the first question. Who are you? Are you him? I mean, are you the anointed one of God who has come to rescue Israel once and for all? Has anybody ever asked you that? <laughs> Me neither. I think it's helpful for us to see it, though. Like, this, this should show us just how powerful John's ministry had become, that they would ask him this question. But John says categorically, no, I am not the Christ. Okay, then, are you Elijah? The Jews, they ask this question because there's a prophecy from Malachi chapter 4, where God says, Behold, I am going to send to you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. In other words, before the final judgment, Elijah will come to turn the people's hearts back to God. Well, maybe that's what John is doing. He's he's calling people to repentance. But again, John says, No, I'm not. Okay, well then, are you the prophet? Now, the prophet refers to uh, somebody who is mentioned first back in Deuteronomy 18, that God is going to raise up a prophet like Moses from among the people, and you must listen to him. This was an assumption among the Israelites that that near the end of all things, the prophet would arise, that fulfillment would come. John, are you him? No. Okay, well, we're tired of guessing. Tell us plainly then, who you are, and he answers them by quoting Isaiah 40. I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. That is to say, I am God's messenger to proclaim the coming Messiah. I am not the Christ, but I am here as a voice crying out to prepare the way for him. I'm here to prepare the people for the ministry of the one 
who is to come. Now that brings up an interesting question. How exactly was John preparing people for Jesus, for his coming? He, he wasn't doing like Paul Revere. He wasn't riding through the towns saying, Jesus is coming. Now, what John was actually doing, he was calling people to confess their sins and to be baptized. And that brings up a really interesting question. And it's a question that's not lost on the Jews in this moment. Look at verse 24 with me. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing, if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? Now we're really getting to the heart of things. Why are you baptizing? Y'all, baptism has always been significant. We hold it in a very high place. Uh, we don't, uh, it's, it's not for us some sort of secondary thing or some sort of frivolous thing. No, we, we revere the practice of baptism. Well, so did the Jews. I mean, this baptism was not something you just did uh, in between eating breakfast and picking up the dry cleaning. This was serious spiritual business. It was a signal of significant change, of a movement, something new and radical. The assumption would have been, if John is baptizing people, he's bringing them into a new way of being, a new way of life. This was not business as usual. Uh, and I, further, the assumption would have been that John is baptizing them into himself, into a ministry in which he is the head, the leader. Y'all, if, if, if a cult leader started drawing people out to a, a, a commune or out somewhere in the wilderness to form a new community, obviously we would look at that with great suspicion, but we would understand how it works, right? People are following this one person, and they're being baptized in a sense. They're being united into him, into his ministry or his way of life or whatever it may be. Well, it's, it's entirely possible that the religious leaders saw John kind of like that. Maybe not a cult leader per se, but something like that, a dynamic, uh, outspoken, radical man who's baptizing people. John, you must think you're pretty special then, huh? Well, listen to this. Listen to John's response. This is verse 26. John answered them saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. We see this. John is he's, he's making a statement of humility. I baptize in water. It's, it's, it's physical water. What I'm doing here in the water is not the thing. It's not the ultimate thing. What I'm simply doing is, is trying to point a great big blinking arrow to the thing, or more specifically, to the person, someone greater than me. Among you stands one whom you do not know. I am not the Christ, but the Christ has come. He's in the world even now, standing among you. And John says, it is he who comes after me, whose sandal I am not even worthy to untie. Now, in the time of uh, this gospel, uh, in, in ancient Israel, people wore sandals. We know that. 
But what we understand, of course, is, is based on the terrain. If you wore sandals, your feet would have been constantly covered in dust and dirt, just dirty all the time, their feet. And so at the end of the day, before dinner, you would take off your sandals and wash your feet. That's something you always did before you sat down for your meal. And prominent people, if you were, if you were of high standing, then you didn't take off your own sandals. You had servants who would do that for you. And so as you can imagine, the, the, the ugliness, the dirtiness of all of that, it was a very menial task for a servant to untie, to take off the sandals, to wash the feet. You see what John is saying then about Jesus? You're all looking at me. You're asking me if I'm something special. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of the one who's coming. What an awesome statement. Now, can you imagine how this would have stirred up the people? Not just the leaders, but all the people? For John to say, in essence, y'all, I'm just a little matchstick trying to point you to the bonfire. And we don't have to wait long to see it. John is, is, is showing us, you're looking at me when you ought to be looking at him, the one who is to come, who will surpass me in every possible way. And here it is, the next day, verse 29. The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him. John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Y'all remember the movie Jurassic Park? Uh, fairly early on, the archaeologists have been brought to the island, uh, and they, they go out on a jeep through the park, but nobody has seen any dinosaurs yet. The audience, we haven't seen one yet. But then the jeep stops, and the camera pans in on Sam Neill as he stands up in the jeep and, and very awkwardly, you know, kind of tears off his sunglasses. And see, it's a wonderful moment of suspense because as the audience, we see his face. That's all we see. But it's obvious from the look on his face, he sees something spectacular. And only as the camera turns and then pans out do we realize what he sees. It's a brontosaurus. We all get to see it. Well, y'all think about what, what's happening here. For, for quite a while now, at least, it seems that everyone has been looking to John the Baptist. Everybody's hanging on his words. Everybody is wondering, who, who might he really be? And finally now, well, while everybody's looking at John's face... Finally, John has this opportunity to turn their attention and say, Look, it's him, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, we, we don't know at this point how, how clearly the people would have understood that proclamation. But as John the author records it, and as we read it, I think it's clear what we're meant to see. And any person who was well-versed in the Jewish scriptures, which would have been most people, they certainly would have understood the connection here. Here's what John, I think, is saying. 
the most, the most precious story, the most um, significant moment in Israel's history is the Exodus story. We, we just read it not that long ago in our Bible reading plan. The Exodus story, which is the account of God's power and God's mercy in bringing his people Israel out of the land of Egypt, out from under slavery. And the centerpiece of that account is what we call the Passover. God was going to bring final judgment on Egypt, on the land, but in his mercy, he determined that he would spare his people Israel so as to bring them out of the land. And so God gave them what to do. He said, take the blood of a spotless lamb, all of you, every household, and spread that lamb's blood over the doorposts of your house. And when judgment for sin comes in the night, everyone sheltered under the blood of that lamb will be spared, will receive mercy, and live. Now, God did not give Israelites that plan because they were righteous and they had earned his favor. No, the Israelites were sinners too. That's why they needed the provision of the lamb. Had the lamb's blood not been there to cover them, they would have faced the same judgment. But because they were sheltered under the blood, God would pass over their guilt on account of his mercy provided for them. He would deliver them from judgment, from death. Now, what, what would it mean for Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? And think about this for us, right? Right where we stand or sit in this moment. If you and I are sinners, and God should bring his just and righteous judgment upon us. We are hopeless. We have no argument. We have no excuse. We, have, we don't have good deeds that somehow outweigh our bad. There's nothing at all we can bring to the table to escape God's righteous judgment. But what if God provides a sacrifice for us in our place? What if God gives a spotless lamb a sinless son who takes our judgment for us that we might be granted mercy instead. What if Jesus elects to lay down his own life in order to save us from death? Because that's the gospel. That's the ultimate and entire point of all the scripture and of all of history is that God was willing to send his own son, in fact, God delighted to send his own son, to lay down his life, to cover us by the shedding of his own blood, that our sins may be forgiven and we might be rescued from judgment. In 1 Peter, Peter says it like this, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. And so God, John is saying, God has provided the true lamb for us, the one who takes away all of our sin. And this is God's grace given to us, a gift 
that we may receive by faith. The gospel does not say God will favor us if we're good enough. No, just like Israel, we take shelter under the blood of another and we receive mercy. Jesus Christ has done it for us. Now, think about that. What John has just said, even if the people around him in that moment couldn't fully grasp what he was saying, we surely understand it. This is the greatest announcement that's ever been made. Or at least it's up there. It's in the top ten. How would John know about all this? I mean, really, John has been, has been boosting Jesus now in front of all the people. How did he know that this man is really the man who's going to accomplish such a supernatural feat? Well, th this is fascinating to me. It always has been. Look at John explain to us how he knows that Jesus is the Lamb of God. This is verse 31, the conclusion of the, of the paragraph. I did not recognize him, John says, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him, Jesus. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen, John says, and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now, this is incredible. John says it twice. I did not recognize him. John didn't, John didn't know exactly who he was looking for. And that's even stranger to me, considering that John and Jesus were related. Their, their, Luke tells us that their mothers were relatives. But God told me who to look for, he says. He will be the one upon whom the Spirit descends and remains. Uh, now this, what John is referencing here is something that, interestingly, the gospel doesn't tell us. Uh, we're, we're assumed to know what he's talking about because it happens in the other three Gospels. All, all three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us that Jesus came to John to be baptized. Let me give you the quick little snippet here from Luke chapter 3. Here's what happened. Now, when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven. You are my beloved son. In you I am well pleased. This is how John came to see, to recognize Jesus as the Savior, as the Lamb of God. Upon him the Spirit descended and remained. But John doesn't just see Jesus in terms of his identity, but also his purpose. Because God said, the one upon whom the Spirit descends and remains, this is the one, God says, who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. Remember, John baptized in water, and he said that in a way that was, that was meant to evoke humility, as if it wasn't, it wasn't really anything. Because comparatively, it wasn't. John says, I baptize in water. It's a mere symbol. It's a mere preparation of what is to come. Jesus will baptize 
in the Holy Spirit. And remember, if we understand baptism to, be, to mean uniting with another, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the one who will bring people into true communion with God himself. Jesus will unite us, will make us at union with God's own spirit. This, this is where life comes from. Later on in John, Jesus says, the flesh profits nothing. It is the spirit who gives life. And so Jesus doesn't just come possessing the spirit upon him, but Jesus will give the spirit. He will unite us with the spirit, all of those who trust him. This is how I know. This is why I've testified, John says. This man is the Son of God. Now, we've, we've covered a lot today. There are, there are going to be some Sundays where, going through John, where we, we have to cover a lot of Scripture in a, in a short amount of time. Uh, it's just the way we have to do it. I, I, I want to try to finish the Gospel of John before you know, we're all dead. And so... Uh, we, we, can't, uh, we, we can't go through in detail every single uh, word, maybe always the way that we would like to. We've, we've taken a look at a big chunk today. But I want to I wanna boil it down in terms of how we might apply it to our hearts. I want us to think about this. Um, when, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming to him, now I think about who John the Baptist is. We, we, I mentioned this a minute ago. He's like the Billy Graham of his day. He is the most popular preacher around. Everybody wanted to come see him. They were hanging on his every word. Lives were being changed, it seemed, through his ministry. But the moment that Jesus walks up to him in verse 29, John has to know, this is pretty much the end for me now. I mean, that's, that's the whole point of being a forerunner, right? Your purpose is to prepare everybody for someone else, for the next guy. Your purpose is to shine the light on someone else, not on yourself, right? And so when, when that moment comes for Jesus to begin his ministry, John has effectively served his purpose. And the limelight is no longer his. Now, there, there's no reason for us to speculate, you know, on the psychology, what was really going on in John's mind, no. But here's what we know. John was in no way threatened by Jesus. He was not threatened by Jesus. If we read verse 29, verse 29 does not say, uh, as Jesus was coming toward John, John said, oh man, well, it was fun while it lasted. No, he said, look, the Lamb of God. He was happy. He was eager to turn the attention away from him and point it to where it belonged, to point it to Jesus. Now, y'all, we're going to come to it eventually, but John's final words in the gospel, they come at the end of John chapter 3, and then we really don't see him again. But the last thing that John says before he exits the narrative, he says, this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. This joy of mine has been made full. 
that Jesus would increase, that Jesus would get more and more and more of the attention and that I would get less and less. Do you think John felt like he was losing something in this exchange? Do you think he was upset? No. It's my joy to serve my purpose and to let Jesus have the spotlight. Oh my goodness. Y'all, you and I, we may not share a whole lot in common with John the Baptist, but this is a joy I think we can all share in, a joy that we all ought to desire and pursue. It's the joy of knowing Christ, of trusting Christ, and of living in such a way that we're pointing others to Him. You know, it seems counterintuitive perhaps to us, but there is no greater joy, there is no greater joy in this life than our decrease so that Jesus might increase. In devoting ourselves fully to Him so that it is not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to Your name be the glory. There is no greater joy, not for John, not for you and me. His increase, not mine. And so that's my hope, that's my prayer for us, that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would be that precious to us. Our joy is full as He increases all the more. Our joy is full as He takes center stage. Would we treasure Him as He deserves? Let's pray together. Father, I ask Your grace this morning that we would see in the ministry of John the Baptist uh, great power. Uh, he, is an, he is altogether admirable. He's amazing. And yet His joy was to step out of the light so that we may see the true light. His joy was to humbly know His own place and to rejoice at the coming of a Savior. Father, would we all carry that mentality, that heart, as Your children who have trusted You? That, Lord, our heart would not be, yes, I want Jesus to increase, but I want to increase too. Um, but, Lord, that we would trust You that, Lord, our increase does not depend on us, and it's not found merely in the things of this world. Lord, our increase is to know Christ. Our riches are the riches of the glory that we've been given forever in Him. We won't, we won't lose anything in the end. We gain Christ. And so I pray, Lord, that we would desire the increase, that we would desire to give Jesus all of our devotion, Lord, all of our ambition, all of our, of our desire would be centered on Him, to know Him, to treasure Him, to point to Him, to tell the world around us, look, this one is the Lamb of God. Make it so, even as we believe it for ourselves, that we would live a life that is just perpetually shining light on our Savior. We ask it in His name. Amen.